In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob. Podcasting to you live in the wee hours of the morning. From beautiful northeast Minneapolis. Suffering a little, well, I don't know if it's really insomnia, but uh, I woke up with uh, some severe indigestion. Note to self, don't mix Mexican leftovers with uh, lasagna. (laughs) We had some uh, one piece of lasagna that Mary and I split that she had made, and then uh, we had some leftover uh, beef quesadilla and some some chips and salsa and stuff, and, uh, I don't know, I don't know if, I mean, it's mainly old geezers that listen to this show, like me, it seems like when I turned 30, all of a sudden, tomatoes and onions, which I love, both turned on me, and now give me massive indigestion when I eat them, but that doesn't prevent me from eating them, anyway, I woke up, couldn't get back to sleep, uh, I think it was um, 2.15, which, yippee, it's spring ahead, daylight savings time here in the States. So it's, you know, even though the clock is now, was officially 3.15, it was actually on my body clock, 2.15. And, uh, yeah, just haven't been able to get back to sleep. The one nice thing about well, the spring portion of daylight savings time is my cats kind of get back on a normal, quote unquote, normal schedule. So they're not waking me up at, uh, at four or five in the morning. Instead, they're content until five or six in the morning. So boy, when that, when it first gets to the fall back thing, when you set the clocks back and they're in essence, waking you up so so much earlier. Um, oh, that's tough. Tough on pet owners. Anyway, Colin Bonanza, but gets more Bonanza. I'm shocked. I <laughs> dropped that episode. Uh, was it just yesterday? Or maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's the equivalent of a day and a half now, but in the meantime, I got something like, I lost track, 16, 17 calls or something. So I should probably try and clear the docket again before um, before I move on and talk about my, uh, my Dragon House rules. But, uh, I mean, it's great. Uh, we're having these anchor conversations and stuff. Kind of makes me think that maybe I should, <laughs> these conversations mean we should try and get one or two people together and discuss some of the things that are going back and forth because maybe we could hammer it out better with uh, just a, a tandem or a triple cast. But let's move on to the calls. Take it away. I think it's Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast that's warming up in the on-deck circle. Now batting. Number 13. Jason Connerly Connerly Bum bada bum bada bum bada bum 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 
Listening call in Bonanza 15. I, I should mention that if you release ep- multiple episodes a day, some podcatchers do not catch them. So, like, I missed my podcatcher didn't pick up your um, Baramay's Appreciation Day episode because it picked the other one up to release on March 4th. So, I'm going to try to listen to that later today. But yeah, just be, be aware that a lot of people's podcatchers won't, if you release two episodes a day, they only pick one of them up. So you might not, if you're seeing differences in plays and stuff, that might be why. Uh, going back to the, you know, the mage casting. Um, oh, well, before I talk about that, let me listen to my, your response to my calls. So hold on. Yeah, I've heard that before, that some podcatchers don't catch multiple releases. I don't notice that with the one I use, aside from Anchor, just Apple Podcasts or whatever it it picks up all of them. And I haven't really noticed any... When I have dropped two episodes in one day, it doesn't seem like I've seen any big difference between the listens. The the two I dropped, the Barrel Maze one and a Colin Bonanza one or whatever it was. Uh, I think there's two more listens to the Barrel Maze one than the other, but uh, which isn't a whole lot in the grand scheme of things, but... Point noted. I do think, by the way, it's healthy to take a, a break now and then. I don't do it, but I think all you normal people should do it. So, yeah, if you took a break off just to read books and watch monster movies, you, you know, that wouldn't be the worst use of your time. Okay, back to listen to your response to my call before I comment more on the um, the magic user. Ba- effectively spell burn, for lack of a better term. I really like the idea, though, that... You said at the end of your answer, Joe's call, the spellcaster rolling a d6 for the damage instead of a d4. You know, roll one die higher than their hit die to make it dangerous. I, I really like that. But let, let me go back to your show. I'll call you back here in a bit. Wow, that Daniel Norton's a pretty smart guy, isn't he? Um, <laughs> anyhow, I no, I, I like his ideas on dragons. I, I'm I'm with Daniel. I like the, the chance for subdual debt you know, the percentage chance subdue, because I think that's good. Actually, what I like that is, I like that subdual chance for any humanoid. So I think if you're in a bar fight, you could do a bar fight with that subdual damage as well. You wouldn't subdue the other guy, as in, like, he becomes your your henchman. But as far as knocking somebody out or defeating somebody, and, you know, we've gone back and forth before talking about hand-to-hand damage and stuff, and 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 your feelings on hand-to-hand damage, but I think subdual damage might be a good way to handle fights in D&D. And so, I mean, yeah, it lets a first-level fighter knock out a 10th-level fighter, but, you know, the hit point percentage hit points are still in there, so there's still, I, I think it will work out pretty well. That said, if you use subdual for a dragon or, a, you know, a big monster, I definitely think they should have a good chance of turning on you pretty quickly. So... You're not going to do your subdual damage to the dragon. Because maybe you do get that, you get lucky with that 5%, right? Maybe that represents you whacked him on the nose and hurt him. But that dragon's devious. So he might say, oh, I surrender, I surrender. But then on the way back to town, he might attack the party, right? So, yeah, I got no problems with it. But I definitely, they're not going to be subservient, like, forever. And I would treat it, you know, you think of a Western, you know, the bad guy throws his gun down, but he's always plotting to escape. Well, I, I would treat it like that. 
in most cases, to be honest. And I know that kind of subverts the ideas to do a little bit, but I think that's a much more realistic. And, you know, if the party doesn't have a good way to actually bind up the dragon where it can't hurt them, well, you know, they, and they're pretty stupid to think they can just drag a dragon in by its nose, right? As far as, well, I already said I like what Daniel said and, and the way you're already thinking as far as the size categories and all that kind of thing. Um, so what else? Oh, so I'm not, I, you sound a little bit defensive there, and I hope maybe that was just my mishearing. I'm definitely not attacking you on the Vancey and Magic thing or anything. I, I don't I don't think you have to have, to me, Magic is weird and wonderful. I'm a DCC Magic kind of guy, personally, which I know goes a little more gonzo than what you like. But, yeah, I think you could definitely make it work with Vancey and Magic, your, your Spellburn system. You just have to tweak things a little bit. But I, but I bring it up just because for some players, it, it is an issue. But in fact, and the thing with clerics and the quests, I think is interesting. So recently, I, in fact, last night, I taped an interview with Eric Salzweedle. And I'm not sure how soon that'll show on a show. He's about to go on vacation. So it might be a week before he drops his episode. But, it's, but we talked about Vancey and Magic and then other magic systems. And, and it's funny enough, we talked about, you know, for he, he's of the opinion that clerics should have to go quest for new abilities. So, so I think if he doesn't chop out too much of it, it'll be a pretty interesting interview for you to listen to. Um, but yeah, I, we're not that far apart on this stuff. But um, I, 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 the last thing I'll say is, oh no, I'll do that in a different, different message. But yeah, great episode. I look forward to, to hearing your future ones. And I'll watch for them to drop. So keep up the great work. Yeah, I think it's healthy to take a little break once in a while. And I probably will. I mean, I'll I'll probably be taking a break sometime in May when I'm on vacation. But uh, aside from that, I might take just a, a holiday from pod, listening to podcasts, uh, playing games, working on games and stuff, and just kind of clear my head. I might take a week or two off at some point here this spring and... Maybe around the start of the baseball season. Just enjoy baseball, watch a bunch of baseball, immerse myself in that. Um, read some more nonfiction, because I haven't read any of that for a while, but yeah. Okay, I'm picking this up on Monday morning, because I kind of lost my mojo. As far as, yeah, Spellburn. Um, I guess DCC might be where I got the whole idea I'm really not a big advocate for Vancey and Magic. In fact, in most games I've been playing lately, um, like Whisper Tales of Gore, we just use spontaneous casting for Magic users and elves. So they just can, they have a given amount of spell slots, which are the same ones that are given in the rules, but they choose which spells they can cast or which spell to cast from the ones they know, so they don't have to memorize, like, Magic Missile and Charm Person. They can use two first-level spells a day from any spells they know. Now, clerics do need to uh, specify in my games, just because they have the the whole variety, the whole breadth of spells available to them, which is a really big advantage in the first place. They don't have to find these things and inscribe them into a book and have that book, you know, you can take it away from them and basically take away their power. Um, 
and I see them more as like praying for their spells and then having that power to release. Now you could make it so that I suppose they're invoking the deity to answer their prayers each time they cast a spell. In which case, I don't know, I think I'd maybe then require them to spend a, a actual round doing it. And then the spell go, goes into effect the following round. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm just looking at it as this is a mechanism to recall a spell or the capability to cast a spell and go beyond the limits that you normally have. So if you're a first level magic user and can only cast one spell a day, well, with this rule, you can, you can cast another, but you take damage and there's a chance that you can actually kill yourself. I kind of like that. Um, and if it's a Vancian system, which is what I'm currently doing in Swords and Wizardry, uh, it just allows you to recall a spell that you've previously cast. Now that <laughs> both the spellcasters in my my game just were recently turned to stone, so I suppose we could reassess this now with a clean slate and... I could canvas the guys and see if they'd prefer going to a spontaneous casting system or just keep on with the, the Vancean. But as far as DCC magic goes in general, I'm it's it's really flavorful, but it's I've played it and it's not something I enjoy. Uh, the spell burn in there I think is used in much more of a meta currency kind of way. Um, I, because it's based on a spell casting role and you're the effectiveness of the spell is based upon this table. You, by spell burning, you're essentially raising the floor and the ceiling, so you're increasing the likelihood of success, but also expanding the table beyond what you normally might have, so you can get these super crazy results. And in my experience, DCC is so swingy where you can have things like, well, you cast a sleep spell and you completely botch it and all your comrades go to sleep. See ya! Um, or you can uh, have the the spellcasting foe completely botch all the spellcasting attempts and thereby be a complete pushover, which also happened in a game. Uh, or you can have, like, a magic missile spell suddenly shoot out, like, ten magic missiles, like you're a 20th level caster or something, even though you're first level, because you got really lucky, and you spell-burned your way down to an amoeba. I think that game can work fine if it's really lighthearted in tone, you don't really <laughs> care what happens to your characters, or if it's a one-shot or just a really short campaign, uh, and from what I understand, one-shots and convention play in DCC. That's what all the spellcasters do. They basically spell burn themselves down to a walk to an amoeba. I mean, to to nothing because there's no repercussions. There's no future, so why not do it? Um, and if, if you have a halfling in the party who serves as kind of a, a familiar of sorts that becomes 
a renewable um, meta currency that uh, to me that's the worst thing about DCC is the halfling luck rule I would I would ban that and then DCC might be a little bit more palatable to me I mean Goodman even recognizes that it's broken right and by the fact that you can only have one halfling in the party or at least one halfling luck in the party he realizes that if you have more than one it really breaks the game and even one breaks the game for me but anyway, as far as the subdual stuff, that sparked a lot of calls. This tangent could develop into a whole nother thread of uh, podcasts. And I think it's important to note that, at least in Swords and Wizardry, in the subdual rules, which I read last episode, there, there's no real like binding someone to your will. The subdual rules just is a way of inflicting at least partial non-lethal damage to knock someone unconscious. And I like having that option uh, available to the, to the PCs. They can, they can try and just sap the guard and knock them out rather than killing them. And they might accidentally kill them. They accidentally hit him too hard or if he doesn't have many hit points, but I'm, really leery of systems that completely bypass the hit point mechanic. I mean, hit points are pretty abstract, but they are in there to measure like the staying power and fighting ability of a creature. So to have something that bypasses that, like the subdual rules where you're giving a percentage based upon the damage done, uh, I just am um, a little uncomfortable with that, and especially in the using it in unarmed combat, because then you're really... I, that's the, the big problem to me with so many unarmed combat uh, systems, is if they become a more effective way to attack a creature, then it's broken. Because the... It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, yeah, if I I totally get that six people could try and hogpile someone and bring them down, that's fine. But having someone just like like your example, a tenth level fighter fighting a first level fighter. Well, the first level fighter knows he's not gonna win by just using conventional I attack him with my sword. But if you allow the chance to just knock the guy out the 10th level fighter out with one fist to his apparently glass jaw, well then, you'd always choose that route, right? As a first level fighter, if you knew you were attacking a a higher level foe, it's like, well, I'm going to get my ass kicked if I just engage in normal melee combat, so drop the sword and try and get lucky and cold cock him. And that makes no sense to me. That Daniel Norton is one smart dude. As is Jason, and Minion, and Ray Otis, and who else called in? And Taylor from Clerics Wear Ringmail. And they've all got stuff to say about subduing, too. So take it away, guys. Air up, Daniel from Bandits. Keep listening to the call-in bonanza. You're about to get to my call, so... I'm not calling about that, but I was thinking more about the subdual thing. And I think part of what I don't like about the having to reduce them to zero damage is that I feel like, zero hit points I should say, is that I feel like nobody would ever do that. 
Like, why would you risk fighting a terrible beast and only doing some dual damage if you had to knock it to zero hit points no matter what? Like, that just feels like it'd be a bad move on the case of the players, because if they started losing, they'd have to start from scratch again, right? It'd be a little bit weird. But what I will say is that, um, or you could do it the way 5e does it, right? Where you do it in the last blow, which again, I, I'm not sure I love. So this is why I like the percentage thing. However, I get your point, and maybe the house rule could be something like you could never subdue a creature until you've done at least 50%, let's say, damage or something like that. Then it becomes a percentage after that. This way it's not, it goes, doesn't go out of... I suppose if you want to make it even more difficult, it could be that once you've hit that 50% area, then it becomes the percent from there. So let's say... You've knocked the dragon down to 50% of their hit points. They started with 58 points, so they're down to 25. But you then do 5 points of damage, which would be 10% of the initial amount. Now there's a 10% chance that you could subdue the dragon. And again, that's after you've knocked them down to halfway via normal damage. Another way to look at it would be that you can't subdue creatures that are more hit dice than you. Or the chance to do that would be more difficult, stuff like that. Uh, and I think you could balance it out that way. I, I just think reducing them to zero just doesn't... I don't see why anybody would ever do that. It just seems very, very... Like, a very bad move. Especially with dragons. Um, especially in BX with dragons, because, you know, you would not... Um, you, their, their breath weapon wouldn't get weaker, right? Because their hit points aren't going down. Thinking about dragons, the dragon in medieval art is often small much smaller than the dragon in contemporary art. And I think that might be where the dragon being subdued or sold or a dragon being very common on the encounter list comes from. So as you get to the Ed Greenwood version where dragons are a much bigger and much tougher part of the setting, I'm curious how related that is to power creep. So as editions moved forward, uh, as games moved forward, players became more powerful, and so the iconic monster needed to scale, so to speak. So just thought on the subject and figured I'd send it your way. Hey, this is just some quick thoughts on subdual damage. Um, I'm talking through my ear pods, so it may sound like crap. Um, I don't get it. I mean, I don't understand what subdual damage is. I, I don't feel like you should be able to well, let's just do away with it, right? Let's start with that. I feel like for creatures other than humanoids, if you do enough damage where they fail their morale check, they might sue for peace, right? Or like servitude. They might offer themselves up as slaves. And that's a, that's the effective form of subduing. You get them to the point where that you break their morale. Um, and then it's not like you control them. Even with subdual rules, that doesn't even make sense that afterwards you could sell them as slaves and stuff. Like... You know, that you can only go so far as your force lets you. Um, uh, or because, like, an evil dragon, I would think, was not going to honor its, you know, saying I was subdued or whatever for very long. Anyway, and then for humanoids, I'd have kind of a knockout rule, I guess, that's kind of separate. But I don't like the idea of two different types of damage, two different types of damage. That's what I was saying there when I got cut off. Um, against humanoids, first of all, I guess if they're just wanting to subdue a humanoid, you know, you could. Um, you could just fight it till their morale breaks, but I would also maybe allow them to pull punches, which would have half their damage. So whatever they're using, 
weapon or otherwise when they hit uh, they could say ahead of time like hey i'm pulling my punches so half all my damage you could still accidentally kill somebody but it's a little less likely and then as far as knocking somebody out uh you know like i said i only allow it against humanoids and there's probably a stealth roll involved um i would treat it like a ben bars lift gates roll probably you know just like to to whack them and, and uh, to knock them out and that, again i would only allow that on humanoids maybe even on you know, I don't know if it would affect a bugbear, for instance, or an ogre. Certainly not. But yeah, that's that's kind of my thoughts. Hey, Rob, this is Minion, also known as Rob. And in response to your um, concerns about about um, subdual damage, I agree. I think I prefer the basic D&D style where you have to knock them down at least half hit points or something to that effect. The... Um, Many people ask where where it came from, uh, this idea of subdual. And I've got a feeling it comes from Farmer Giles of Ham, um, written by Tolkien, where this exact kind of situation happens and they get the dragon to cart out, well, to promise to work uh, for the village and protect the village. And they cut, it carts out all the treasure as well. And so they get this dragon working with the village and also getting to keep some of its gold. Uh, and they uh, make sure that the king doesn't take the treasure or screw over the peasants. Okay, so what happens if the adventurers do get a dragon somehow, you know, by uh, getting lucky, and uh, they have this powerful uh, keeper to protect their their treasure hoard and their stronghold or wherever it is that they uh, hang out? Well, the dragon, as somebody else has pointed out, is extremely intelligent. And there's nothing stopping it from taking back what was once its own and um, and more. So it could be a good way to um, relieve the relieve the uh, adventures of uh, excess treasure and magic items, um, and also you know creating a new dungeon from from what was once the uh, stronghold of the players. So uh, yeah, uh, I I don't think you need to worry too much. The problem is that. Ten players can get a bit annoyed sometimes when you take away what was once theirs. Anyway, thank you, guy. Hey, lots of good stuff there. Thanks, guys, on uh, chiming in on this. And uh, I think in all of this, what I, the conclusion I've come to is I don't want to have subdual of dragons as a thing in my games. Um, I like the subdual da- uh, rules in combat as outlined in uh, Swords and Wizardry. I, as I said, I like having the option of trying to knock at least a humanoid creature out by, you know, doing subdual damage. And where that kind of comes in nicely, too, with the idea of a thief or an assassin being able to sap someone, is they can do it with a backstab and do twice the damage. And... They're more apt to knock someone out, but they're also more apt to accidentally kill someone with that kind of backstab, subdual, um, caching kind of thing. But actually binding a creature to to your will by subduing them, and especially a dragon, eh, I don't really like that. And I think Ray brings a very important point to the mix, and that's if you have morale... Uh, as a system in your game, use it. Use that as the way for a creature to surrender and knuckle under 
And if you think dragons should be more, potentially more, like, prone to that than they, than they are in the game, well, just lower the morale a bit. Um, have them more likely to, uh, to knuckle under. And maybe they automatically make a morale check if they're reduced to half hit points or something. And if they fail the morale check, they're like, I sir, don't kill me and you can have my, uh, my horde or whatever, you know? Then you go to role-playing from that point. Because really, I mean, is there, is there a system that's been outlined somewhere for how, how you have this contract of subdual and stuff? And I'm trying to think, too, in the self-referential nature of D&D. I haven't read that many of the novels, but the only instance of, like, subdual outlined in the D&D novels I can remember is, I think, Curse of the Azure Bonds, uh, Dragon Bait, this, like, lizard man-like character, engages in a challenge with a red dragon. I can't remember the name of it. The Red Dragon, was it Mist or something? I don't know. No, I don't think that was it. But anyway, I think they outline a subdual challenge in that book. Might have to try and find that again. But uh, if you have your own, any other thing, any other comments to add to the conversation on subdual or anything else, feel free to chime in. But I got a few more calls from Minion about the spell Augury in AD&D. He has the books at his fingertips and has provided us with the nitty-gritty. Hey Rob, this is Manion, also known as Rob, um, and I'm going to read about the first, second level spell, Augury, from 1st edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. So really sh- quickly, um, it has a casting time of two rounds and it ha- requires verbal, somatic and material components. There is no saving throw. Uh, the the uh, item that you have to um, use as a material component is a crushed pearl. Yeah, pearls, wisdom. Uh, of at least 100 gold piece value um, that needs to be added to the concoction. Usually it's like a... Here you go, yes, it's a um, the material component... Um, set of gem inlaid sticks, dragon bones, or similar tokens, or the wet leaves of infusion. Okay, so if it's the wet leaves of infusion, I'm reading this backwards, then it requires a, a, a hundred gold piece um, crushed pearl, so quite difficult components. Sorry, racing against time here. Here's what it says. The cleric casting an algory spell seeks to seeks to divine whether an action in the immediate future within three turns, within three turns, will be for the benefit of or harmful to the party. The base chance for correctly divining the algorithm is 70% plus 1% for each level of the cleric casting the spell. Blah, blah, blah. Your referee will determine any adjustments due for the particular conditions of each algorithm. For example, assume that the party is considering the destruction of a weird seal which closes a portal. Algorithm is used to find if weal or woe will be ultimate result to the party. And I've already mentioned the material components. As always in first ed, you need to look at the DMG to get a better idea. So on page 41, Mr. Gygax tells us that, with regard to Algory, that this is a general future determinant with only a half hour maximum. So you need not be too exacting with regard to your vagueness. When the Algory is cast, 
Simply compare the knowledge you have and give the character general impressions of uh, of the question asked. Will we do well when we if we venture on to the third level? Answer: Those who survive will be rich. Basis: You have a terrible troll near where the character will enter the level if he does, but um, the probable party is strong enough to beat it after a hard fight, and the monster guards ten thousand silver pieces and a plus one shield. So there you go. That is Algri and uh, where Will wheel or Woe comes from. So there you go. Joe, your Wheel or Woe uh, actual play is named after a first level AD&D spell. Not a Pathfinder spell. <laughs> but yeah, I like those types of spells. And as an example, here's one that I cribbed for the Halberds and Henchmen game. This is a first level Shaman spell. And I probably, I can't remember, I wrote this five years ago now. But I suspect I got this from one of the Bard Games books and elaborated on it. But So this is a ritual spell It takes one turn to cast. Uh, the area of effect is one summoned spirit. And the duration is one turn, components, uh, verbal, somatic, and material. The shaman evokes a very minor spirit of an animal, nature, or the dead. The shaman specifies the type being summoned, including specifying what type of animal, at the time of the casting. Once summoned, the caster must bend the spirit to his will by making a saving throw. If successful, the spirit will perform one service for the shaman. An animal spirit will allow the caster to use the senses of the nearest animal of the spirit's type for the duration of the spell. The spirit takes over the animal and moves how the caster desires. The animal in question cannot have more hit dice than the shaman. During the duration, the caster is oblivious to their own senses, but they can see, hear, smell, and feel through the animal. The shaman can only control the animal's movement. They cannot compel it to attack or do any other tasks. If a nature spirit is summoned, it can tell the caster who has passed through this specific area in the past 24 hours. Descriptions may be rather vague. If a spirit of the dead is summoned, they can deliver a whispered message of up to 12 words to any individual within 10 miles per level of the shaman. The material component is a hair, feather, tooth, or scale of the animal spirit type being summoned, a pool of water or fire for a nature spirit, or a burial site for the spirit of the dead. The shaman gazes into these or handles the component's wall, casting the spell. Complications. If the shaman rolls a natural one for their save, the summoned spirit temporarily takes over the shaman. If an animal spirit, the shaman behaves like the animal. If a nature spirit, the shaman runs off into the wild. If a spirit of the dead, the shaman will roll a d6. On a one to two, attack the nearest creature in melee. Three to four, attempt to dig up the remains of the grave. Five or six, sit slack-jawed in terror. The shaman may attempt a wisdom, uh, or I guess this would be like just a saving throw each round to expel the spirit and resume control of themselves. So there you have it. There's kind of a divination type or um, spell that I've come up with in the past. Probably from another source. <laughs> hey Rob, Jason here. 
just listen to your May's Appreciation Day, 24 June. Sounds like a good plan. I'm all for it. I'll put something out that day. I don't know. Got to play with Barrames with a couple different GMs. So, and kind of reflect on that. Maybe I can get some, I don't know about actual play, but get another game in before then. Would be kind of cool. So, yeah, great idea. And I'll do what I can to support you. Cool. I hope there's a number of us that join in on the 24th of June and mark the 10-year anniversary of Barrel Maze with the tales of adventure that have happened there and just thoughts on the scenario in general, the art in it, whatever. I mean, the maps, all, all the good stuff that's packed within Barrel Maze and the good times we've had playing with it or the inspiration that's given us for other games and such but uh, time to run thanks everyone for calling in i promise the next episode will be uh, more about dragons in swords and wizardry how it's handled there and the house rules i have for handling dragons in swords and wizardry and in other old school versions of D. &D. so thanks for listening don't go down in a heap <laughs>